New Jersey. The most widely known for its pork roll, Parkway, and Bruce Springsteen, it's nicknamed the Garden State for a good reason. Nestled within the Delaware River Valley is a little gastronomical haven, and at the heart of this haven is a cooking school on a farm. It's unique. It's unpretentious. And it's dedicated to teaching people how to make really delicious food. This is the Farm Cooking School, the podcast. Hi. We are your hosts, Kendra Thatcher and Carl Wagner. We work with quite an accomplished culinary community, and we want to spread the love, knowledge, and passion, because that's important. So let's get cooking. On today's episode, we are focusing on cooking with fire, from the grill to our wood oven to, wait for it, even the sun. First up, Ian breaks down live fire cooking at his beloved wood-burning oven. Connecting the dots between the crackling skin on a stuffed pork hock and the fundamentals of what makes us human. Next, we head back down to Mexico where our Baja co-host, Joy Stocky, talks with Chef Judy Castro Lucero about a little known but oh so delicious delicacy, lobster machaca. It takes food by fire to its most basic, cooking the crustaceans using only the sun. And finally, I go into the kitchen and out to the grill with Ian again as he whips up some homemade hot dogs and schools me in grilling techniques. On any given summer evening or weekends throughout the year, Visitors to the farm can see a plume of wafting smoke before they even lay eyes on the school, and the distinctive perfume of hardwood and char meets their noses before they've even stepped foot in our kitchens. This sensory feast, all from the beautiful, rugged, and masterfully crafted stone oven at the top of the hill. There's no question that Ian has a fiery passion for this piece of equipment. I think it was actually one of the biggest selling points for our Gravity Hill location, quite frankly. And for good reason. We use it often, pumping out pizzas, breads, tagines, roasts, you name it. If it can be cooked, you can bet we've put it in the oven. It's primal. It's sexy. It's hot. Here's Ian. Do you want to just tell me what you have going on in here? So we're cooking inside the wood-burning oven. It's been on all day. Uh, because we've been making pizzas for the market. So it got lit at 8 o'clock this morning, and that basically means that uh, we lit a campfire in the center of it and let that burn for about an hour and a half, two hours, until it got to be about 800 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And then we pushed that fire all the way back to the back of the oven and wiped it down and made pizzas on it all day. And slowly that oven came down to about 600, and then we maintained it by throwing some more logs in every 20 minutes or so. Um, And now we're done making pizzas, and I am finishing off the pork shanks for tonight's farm-to-table dinner. So that's the, like, basically the elbow down to the the hoof of the the pig. And we took the bone out, and then we stuffed it with uh, radish top pesto and copa, which is a fermented sausage that we make with the muscle from the the shoulder of the pig. So that that, uh, ages in the walk-in with salt for about a week. This is the copa. Uh, and then it uh, gets put inside a, a beef casing and it hangs in a cool but not cold environment, like 55 degrees, a very humid environment, and we inoculate it with penicillin. 
So the penicillin then starts to break down the muscle fibers and we get this really sort of tender um, salami in the end with, with a ton of flavor. So there's stuff with radish top pesto and copa. Um, that then cooked sous vide for 48 hours, so two full days at 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow, two full days? Yeah. And the most amazing thing is that like these, these muscles and the sinew that connects them, they're, they're totally inedible. Like you can't chew them. Right. Um, but when you cook it that long, that sinew just like totally disappears and turns into liquid collagen. So now these shanks are back in here uh, and we are uh, crisping up the skin. So the skin is still on there and uh, it's gonna be slightly chewy, which is good, but then we'll get nice and crispy on the outside. So can you just tell me a little bit more about the fire? Like what kind of what are we using? How are you managing it? All sure. that fun stuff. So the, uh, the wood that we use, I basically just chop up whatever falls down around here. Um, that can be a lot of hardwood, which is great because that gets really hot. Um, so oak, ash, uh, some fruit woods too, which are a little softer, but have some really sweet smoke. And then poplar, which is a very sort of um, papery wood and it burns like paper. So it gets really hot really fast, but then it, it burns out quickly too. Um, so the poplar is really good to like get the temperature up quickly and then the oak is good to sustain it. And then fruit wood for, for that smoke too because you get the really sweet smoke from the fruit wood. I'm going to turn these guys around because we have a live fire in here and I don't want one side to get too well done. So I'm just going to keep rotating this, um, uh, these shanks so that they uh, crisp up evenly on the outside and not only rotating the pan but also rotating the shank because there's skin all the way around it and we want to get crispy everywhere. Talk to me about the wood burning oven that we use and this is so unique to the cooking school but just as far as this is clearly different. Yeah, so you can you can use fire many different ways. Like right now, I'm searing with fire. And so I want to get a nice brown crispy crust on the outside of this. So I went really hot, almost direct heat. I'm putting this these pork trotters right up next to that fire, right? That campfire that's in this oven. Um, we can also take all the coals out of this oven and then it becomes an oven. You know, it, may, it holds onto this heat for a long time. Um, in fact, three or four days from now, you can still roast a chicken in here having not kept a fire going. Really? Because this the stones in here maintain that heat and they don't want to let it go. It's really well insulated. So it'll be 300 degrees in here on Monday or Tuesday, which is wow. cool, you know, we can harness, we can use that energy, that stored energy to continue to cook. Is it a special kind of stone that's used in this? So oven? inside here are fire bricks. Those are special bricks that have zero moisture in them so that they can get really hot and the moisture doesn't crack the brick, basically. And then uh, outside of that shell, which is the oven itself, is just more, as you can see, more field stone and mortar, and it just it helps to insulate everything in there. You can also cook on coals, right? And so you have the, the live fire, which is very hot. You have the coals, which are also very hot. Like, you can't, if you touch them, it would obviously burn you. But they're less hot than the live fire. So certain things cook really well over coals. You know, you have this radiant heat um, that sort of, like, uh, gently pushes itself outward. So when we roast a pig, we have a live fire and then we take the coals from the live fire and put them under the pig. So we get this nice, long, gentle cook on the pig. Um, you can also cook vegetables in the coals. So something like an eggplant, you throw that right in the coal. It'll get nice and black on the skin, but you, then you scrape the skin off and you have this beautiful, smoky, smooth, silky eggplant. And that's actually what we did with all the seconds of eggplant that we had last summer. 
when we did the smoky eggplant dip. That's exactly right. They're seconds because they're ugly, right? And if you're if they're ugly and you're not going to eat the skin anywhere, then you might as well cook them, right? And so that's a perfect thing to do with the seconds eggplant. That's amazing. Now, as you're no, you can go ahead and and turn and do all that stuff. Is this something that you can't just like walk away? when you're cooking with fire. Yeah, and I wouldn't walk away from this because I've already put, you know, six weeks to make the copa into right. this and then two full days to cook the shank. And like, and like, if it burns, I'm gonna be so mad at myself. So I'm just gonna stand here and, uh, and make sure that it does what I want it to do. So even if you had to stand here for five hours, it wouldn't matter because this is a complete labor of love. It's also a beautiful day. So, I mean, that it helps to stand outside it and does. cook on a live fire. Like, that's like the funnest thing to do is yeah. why I do this for a living is so that I can cook on live fire standing outside on a beautiful day. So, I mean, right. I've arrived. I've made it. <laughs> this is it. All right. Can you see this part here? Yes. How that's starting to crisp up there? So we'll give that another minute, and then I'm going to rotate this whole thing so that we get that even crisping all the way around. Beautiful. So there are different ways to cook with fire. You're cooking with fire when you're cooking in an oven. You're cooking with fire when you're cooking over top of a, a gas burning stove. But this is so much more primal. Um, yeah, because we're actually cooking with fire here. You know, you're, you're always cooking with heat unless you're cooking with acid. Uh, but or salt, but you know the the way that we all think of cooking is with heat, right? And so cooking with fire is the the most basic and also the most complex way to do that because it's the most dangerous. Uh, and I mean that literally, like you could catch something on fire more easily, uh, but also um, it, it's the hardest to control, right? And so the, right next to those burning logs, it's going to be like 900 degrees. And just a foot away from them, it's going to be 700 degrees. And so that's a big difference when it comes to how the food reacts. Um, so cooking with fire is, you know, if you if you get off on thrill, like it's probably the way that you're going to want to cook. It's the only way that I like to cook. Um, the other the other thing to sort of think about when it comes to cooking with fire is that we are the we're the only animals on the planet that cook at all, um, and that sort of differentiates us from every other species in a way. One, because it, it helps us eat things that we normally wouldn't be able to eat, like bacteria. By cooking things, we get rid of those harmful bacteria. Um, it also helps us uh, cook things, or eat things rather, that would be too chewy, for instance. And so we can cook it until it's tender. Um, and so like we have been able to survive longer because we cook our food instead of some other species which may have, um, you know, died off because they got too much salmonella poisoning and couldn't handle it, you know, for instance. Um, and so that really is one of the things that, that is part of the human experience is cooking itself. And then cooking with fire, of course, takes you back to sort of the, like the feeling of the beginning of that and what it must have been like. Imagine if we had to start a fire every time we had to cook. Like, you know, we would take it so seriously because once that fire goes out and everything gets wet, like you can't eat, you know. And so like it's really like humans and fire go hand in hand. Machaca. Have you heard of it? You may have, or you may not have, like I hadn't. It's a popular ingredient frequently used in northern Mexican cuisine. Spiced and dried beef or pork that is then reconstituted and made as a filling for many traditional dishes like tacos. While researching in Baja this past March, 
Chef Judy Castro Lucero let us in on the Baja twist, lobster machaca. Think about it. You use what you have around you, right? And when you're surrounded by water, and from a family of fishermen, you tend to make out pretty damn well. Here, Joy lures the secrets from Judy about this delectable delicacy. Judy, it is great to see you again, and we're in a lovely garden with birds chirping above us, and the sea is lapping a little bit in the distance. And one of the best things you have ever served is something called lobster machaca that I had never heard of until I met you. And it's become one of my favorite dishes. And would you share what it is and a little bit about how you get it? Okay. I have to say that it's my favorite dish too. Okay, when I was when I was a child, my well, my I I belong to a fisherman family, uh, so I grew up eating fish all the time, and in the lobster season, my family moves to the Pacific side. And may I ask you, when is lobster season? Well, it changed. Uh, it used to be in November, and I don't know if now it, it's keeping being in, in November, but it used to be in November. So they moved to the Pacific side to do the lobster fishing. And they came back home with a lot of uh, dry lobster. How is that? Okay, they they catch the lobster, they uh, open it and take out the meat, and they uh, put salt, a lot of salt, and dry it. So when I saw my father arriving, I, my first question to him was, what is the lobster? Because I really like, and so what the, what we, how we cook, it's uh, we take out all the salt, we uh, wash, we rin, rinse the lobster very well. Do you soak the lobster or do you just rinse the lobster? Uh, we, first we take the salt yeah. out. You rinse it off. Uh-huh, and rinse it up, and then we cook in hot and water to boil I don't know let's say for 20 minutes and then take out of the water and shred it very fine after that we chop tomatoes uh, onions and pepper um, poblano pepper fry it and then add the lobster the dry lobster that is already shredded and Oh my God, <laughs> it's uh, for me. It's so good. And then we made burritos out of the machaca, lobster machaca. I have to say that all my family grew up eating uh, lobster machaca burritos, and it, they are uh, pretty much uh, very famous along the whole Baja, even Baja Norte. You can stop by some restaurants, and they will offer uh, lobster burritos, which are really good. I don't. Well, you have tried. We, we um, I asked my uncle to bring me to save some lobster for joy, so we made that uh, dish, and and I think it was really good. It was excellent. And where on the Pacific? Because um, your family has a fished here in Cabo Pulmo, and then they also fished on the Pacific. And where where did they fish? They they went to Bahia Magdalena specific to uh, San Lazaro Island or Puerto Adolfo Lopez Mateos. So my mother is from there. So they met, my father and my mother, they met there 
there in one of the lobster <laughs> seasons. So, Judy, when they dry the lobster, it, it's using sun. It's actually using the fire of the sun, so to speak. And do they lay it out on rocks? Do they... And how are they buried in salt? I'm just curious, how, how, does, how is the salt used to preserve the lobster with the sun? Because it's drawing the moisture out, obviously. Yeah, they use um, sal de grano. They use coarse salt. Sí. Uh, sea salt. Coarse sí. sea salt. Voy a decirlo en español para mejor entendimiento. Mm -hmm. eh, ellos quitan la carne de la concha de la... De crudo. Crudo, sí. Mm. Y lo lo filetean, eh, que quede delgada, entonces ponen la sal de grano, mucha sal, uh -huh. y lo ponen a secar en, en mesas o en, en mesas grandes o no sé. En, no. So, uh, they, they uh, cut the lobster open raw and get the meat out and then slice it very thin and then put a lot of salt on it and just put it on big tables in the sun. So the sun does the drying and they uh -huh. turn them over every, every day and, and every day and they bring them in every night. Every night, same. So Judy, how long is the process uh, when they dry the lobster? Ooh. Oh my God, depends of the sun. I mean, it's, if it's cloudy, it, it takes more. But it, let's say we have very beautiful sunny days, maybe a week. And how long will it remain preserved? Once it's dried, can it last for years? How long I does it last? I think maybe for years. I mean, because it's, it's under the salt, it's, it's protected. But it would never last that long because it's so damn delicious. You are right, Joy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Judy. Really appreciate this segment, too. And let's go have a lobster machaca burrito now. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Thank you, Joy. <laughs> When we go back in March 2020 for our Southern Baja culinary adventure, I made Judy promise me that we'd make a special excursion to the West Coast so I can witness this magic. I have this image in my head of hundreds, if not thousands, of freshly caught lobster fleshes just laying out in the sun. Oh my God, I just can't wait to try it. Sounds so amazing. And a quick plug, if any of you are interested in the machaca or just anything about this great adventure, um, to Baja. Um, you can learn about the trip and how you can join Shelly, Joy, and Judy by checking out our website, thefarmcookingschool.com. There's a video and an itinerary that will really help to give you a better idea of how amazing this whole excursion will be. Grilling season. Though not just for a summer, the southern months do tend to conjure memories of long afternoons with friends devouring snappy hot dogs, charred steaks, and smoky vegetables. Totally primal and uniquely delicious, grilling is one technique which, once mastered, unlocks a whole new world of flavor and experience. And today, Ian will explain how as he walks you through the mysterious ways of the grill from sizzle to steer. But, but what to grill? Don't worry, we also talked homemade all beef hot dogs, way easier than you'd think, which we then grill up and, of course, Kendra devours.
Okay. It's grilling season. So we're about to be stuffing some of Ian's venison hot dogs to kind of give us some context to talk about a little bit about sausages. I think we'll be posting this recipe for you guys, but also mostly just to talk about some basic grilling techniques in this food by fire episode. So Ian, you're currently stuffing this sausage. Prior to this point, describe exactly like the process to making this hot dog. Yeah. So making hot dogs is really fun. And it's one of the things that people think you can't do at home. Uh, but you can. You can totally do it at home. Uh, one correction, I often make venison hot dogs, but these happen to be all beef. Gotcha. Um, so in, in the winter, I make venison because we have venison, but we're out of it. Um, and we do have a whole bunch of beef trim in the freezer. Um, so step one is to measure out your beef. And so we're going for about two and a half pounds of beef. Um, and it, this can be stuff that is trimmed off of shoulders and necks. And you know, as we're breaking the animal down, we end up with about 100 pounds of beef trim. And that can be used as stews or sausages or that sort of thing, or obviously hot dogs. Um, so and measure so, that and, out. And, well, and this is meat that would be like not so great, um, maybe just like seared or just like straight grilled as like a steak. Yeah, that's right. So this is this is just really tough stuff. So this is off muscles that are, have been used a lot. Therefore, they have a lot of flavor, but they're also like, in order to make this, this stuff edible, you either have to slice it paper thin and sear it, or you have to... Uh, grind it up or you have to braise it. So yeah, th- those cuts basically. Gotcha. Um, so measure out that, cut it into cubes about two inches big. Um, measure out your beef fat, which is about 30%. So it's a lot of fat per meat ratio. Mm-hmm. It's higher than a lot of sausages. Um, and you need that because again, like it's just gonna make it juicy. You know, that fat is delicious. Um, so beef fat, beef, and then the seasoning. And that's. fat on top of maybe little scraps of fat that would be on your meat already. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So little scraps of fat that might be on your meat, you don't count that. You just count that as meat. That's just meat. And then you don't have to like eyeball like, oh, maybe it's 1% fat on there. You know, you don't have to even think about it. So it's just just counted as meat. It's like at least 30% hot dog. (laughs) At least 30% fat in a hot dog. Right. Right, exactly. Which, uh, hello, that's why hot dogs are so delicious, right? right? So so the seasonings include salt, uh, black pepper, uh, uh, ground garlic, like dried garlic, and dried onion, and then paprika. Wow. So that is your standard hot dog seasoning. And then the amounts of that, you know, is your sort of proprietary um, adjustment, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, toss that all together and then grind it in your meat grinder so that you get all that seasoning in every bite. And then grind it again through the same meat grinder. So now you have a very fine grind, but it's still more like sausage than it is like hot dog. And then you're going to take that mixture and put it in the food processor. And you have to do this in batches if you have like a regular size food processor at home. And you're going to just process it for like two minutes, right? The problem is if you do that, uh, it's just the friction is going to make it warm up. And if it gets Mm -hmm. higher than like 60 degrees Fahrenheit, it's, it's going to break. So hot dogs are an emulsion, right? They're a suspension of fat and water. And if they get too hot, then what you end up with is just like a streaky, greasy, goopy mess. And what you you want is that suspension. So in order to keep the temperature cool, you drop an ice cube in there every 10 Uh, seconds. And it just processes the ice cube in with the meat, keeping it cool and also creating more of an emulsion. So that water then becomes part of that emulsion. And do you have to worry about adding too much ice? Or I have never had it happen that I added too much okay. ice. I mean, you sort of like you feel the side of the food processor bowl, and if it's cool, 
then you're good. And if it's not cold, then add some ice immediately. Um, and so that's sort of like how you adjust as you go. And this like double grind, then process, food process, process is kind of what that's giving us the texture that distinguishes like a hot dog or like a vice first exactly. from like a, uh, like an Italian sausage or something exactly. like that. Exactly, like a boudin blanc if you're in France. Right, and so an Italian sausage is just that once one course grind. Okay. That's it. Um, and so what we end up with here is a texture that's almost spongy. You know, imagine biting into a hot dog and that's the texture that, that this process gives you. Right, and this is, and I've heard Brian refer to it. We're looking at it here now as we're about to put it in a casing. It's really like battery. It's yeah, I mean, it's it's meat batter is yeah. what it is. That's exactly what it is. Like if you had a cake batter, you'd have a suspension of butter within the flour and the liquid, right? And so here we have suspension of beef fat in, in beef meat. Um, so yeah, a batter is a really good description of that. Cool. And I know for this particular batch, you didn't really care too much because, you know, we'll serve them at market and they look beautiful as like a brownish sausage because that's how meat looks. Um, but you have in your classes done some people just want their hot dogs to be pink because that's like what we're used to yeah usually that's artificial artificially added how yeah so that's that's adding uh nitrites and so to do that you want to get a product called pink salt which you can get on the internet um and you would for a batch this size we would add maybe a teaspoon of pink mm -hmm. salt and that just prevents the meat from turning brown when you cook it um you know, a lot of a lot of people don't like adding extra chemicals to their to their sausages, and in this case, there's no point to it. And so, I'm just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't care if it's brown because we're going to serve these as corn dogs, and you're not going to see the color of it anyway. But I would probably do it that way anyway, and just because our our clientele at the market they're looking for healthier alternatives, mm -hmm. and so we would just leave that out, right. probably in this case anyway. But there are also natural sources of nitrates nitrites that's true so if you see bacon or hot dogs that are, are nitrate nitrite free mm -hmm. um, what that means is they just add some form of celery and so it can be a dehydrated uh. celery powder celery is very high in natural nitrates and so they are still adding nitrates they're just adding a natural version of it and if you look on the package under the ingredients it'll say celery powder or something like that so now We've ground, we're ready to stuff our sausages. We have it in our sausage, sausage stuffer. Um, what kind of casing are you using for these? So there are a couple different options. If you wanted like a snappy hot dog, like a Nathan's, you could use sheep, uh, sheep intestines. Mm -hmm. If you could use pork intestines, but you end up with something the size of a kielbasa. Right. Um, and that would also be snappy. Uh, for the corn dogs, we don't want snap because you get through the, the corn batter and then you hit hard um, sausage casing and like the whole thing crumbles okay. right and so we want to we, we want a, a case free hot dog casing free hot dog so what you can do and what we're going to do is uh, you can get these plastic casings here and they are they're, they're made for hot dogs so they're the right thickness they're, these are 26 millimeters which is what you want to go for if you're going to order this online and then you just use this as a as a casing you don't have to soak it you don't you don't have to make it wet you just slip it right on the machine um, and as it comes out, then you're going to tie the hot dogs off and you have to use string. You can't like twist these like you do a, uh, a, a natural casing. And you're creating like a big line, like a one giant sausage. Right. So we're going to make like a six foot hot dog and then we're, we're going to tie off uh, every five and a half inches with uh, kitchen twine. 
We should just make a six foot long <laughs> corn dog. Right, right. Then you have to have a, a six and a half foot stick to put it on. And fryer. And fryer, right. <laughs> and so today, um, we want to grill some of these. So we'll head out to the grill. Mm -hmm. And I guess we'll talk about that there. So let's talk about some grilling basics as we get these hot dogs on. Um, you started this grill about how long ago? So uh, this grill, we're grilling with hardwood, uh, which has become hardwood charcoal. So we started about an hour and a half ago. I basically built a campfire here um, and let it burn down to coals and then added more uh, hardwood charcoal coals on top of that just to keep it hot and, and going. Mm -hmm. And you prefer hardwood to briquettes to... Could you just yeah. describe what the, what those? Sure. Yeah, I prefer are. hardwood because you get more smoke, okay. and your smoke is like an ingredient, and the, these hot dogs will pick up that smoke as they cook over over this. Um, the next best alternative is hardwood, like lump charcoal that you can buy, right. which is more and more common. You can get it at like home improvement stores or grocery stores a lot of times now. Um, after that, briquettes are an okay option if that's all you can get, um, but. They're not, you know, they're not that great. There are a whole bunch of chemicals in there that can't be good for you. Um, so stick final option, stick with hardwood yeah. if you can, or hardwood lump charcoal okay. are, are your best options. And you get that going and spread it out the length of the grill or? So I like to, I like to put it on three quarters of the grill, um, leaving no coals or very few coals and the remaining one quarter. That gives me a direct heat, which is very hot. Over the, over the coals, and then an indirect heat where I can move stuff if I needed to cook through, or you know, like a big steak, for instance, it would get brown on the outside and still be raw in the center. Mm -hmm. So we wanna move that away so it doesn't burn on the outside, and it's nice to have that option. So right. when you're laying your coals out, think about that. And you'd mentioned um, hot dogs will pretty continuously rotate as they're on here. For other things, um, like a steak, some people are flipping it a lot, some people say, like let it sit for you know their magic number time right and then flip it and then let it sit again what what do you recommend if you are achieving the result that you are going for then you can do any method that works um i happen to be a firm believer in the flip often mm -hmm. um uh, method for a steak i find that i i still get a really nice sear um it just happens a little more slowly which in this case moderation can be a good thing you know, because again, like if we get that super hot sear on the outside and it's cooked the way we want it and we haven't been flipping it and it's still raw on the other side, mm -hmm. then we're going to have less control as if we flip it every minute or so. Um, we just get more even cooking that way. Cool. So with any live fire cooking, the kind of the primary cooking is this direct heat from whatever our source of fire is in this case, the hardwood now coals that we've created. Um, a grill, though, you also have the option to close the lid, mm -hmm. which creates, I guess, like a convection environment, kind of. Like an oven. Yeah. 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 Um, and so when you do that, you probably don't want it over your super hot coals mm -hmm. because when you're not looking at it, it's going to burn. So in that case, you would move it to your indirect section where there aren't coals or there are very few coals and then cover. Right. Yeah. So, so like direct hot heat, a little equivalent to searing exactly. or almost identical to searing. Right. And then you would, like with anything, if you were doing a chicken, you'd sear, move it, cover, 
and cook for the cook until it's cooked through. Sure. If you're doing it the traditional way, you can also do it opposite. So you could start on the lower part and then when it's almost cooked through, you can finish okay. with the sear on a grill, which is in a lot of cases and chicken is a, is a good one, uh, a good way to go because then we have a more moderate um, cooking of the whole bird instead of this super intense heat, which can dry out the outside. Mm -hmm. So we want, you know, in, a, in the case of a chicken, and I'm glad you brought that up, I would do it the opposite. I would start on my indirect side okay. until the chicken's almost done and then move it over to my, my direct side. So we're talking about closing the grill. There's also these little vent things on like the bottom of the grill. The, the lid often has some too. Mm -hmm. How am I using those as I grill things? So if you want to maintain a hot, hot fire and you still want to cook with the lid closed, then you need to open those vents. Uh, because fire needs. fire needs air, fire needs oxygen uh, to maintain itself. If you close those vents, you're going to smother the fire. And eventually, or pretty soon actually, the level of heat will go down. Sometimes you want that, sometimes you don't, which is why you have the option. Mm -hmm. You can have the air vent open or you can have the air vent closed. So okay. in the case of a, of a chicken, for instance, like if you're uh, cooking a whole chicken, you might want some covered time there and you might want a more moderate temperature. And so you might close it with the vents closed, let the, the temperature come down so it can cook more evenly. And then when you want to grill your hot dogs, for instance, the chicken's already off the grill resting, you can add some more coals, open it up, get it some oxygen, and then bring that temperature back up. And so for something like a sausage, or in this case, these hot dogs, they're already cooked. Right. So we just are going to grill them basically on the hot side until they are as like charry and nice as we as, as we, we want, want to get them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and they'll warm through again. Um, so we don't actually have to do any cooking here. We just have to do searing mm -hmm. basically. So, yeah, we'll just go direct the whole time and, and rotate them every 30 seconds or so because right. this is a really hot fire. Right. And so make sure I guess with a quick cooking thing, make sure your buns and your relish and things are all ready to go yeah because this is going to be like two or three minutes right that, that stuff has to be on the table before you put the hot dogs on the grill because if you forget then the hot dogs will be cold by the time you grab all your condiments and and get your buns toasted and all that sort of thing lastly before we eat here controversial question <laughs> what are your hot dog condiments okay so yes super controversial i don't know why but like, I don't know why everybody can just, can't just like let their own freak flag fly <laughs> and just like be you. Um, so if I'm being me, I love a little bit of meat chili, no beans, uh, yellow mustard, and chopped raw onion. And the reason why I like that is because it, it emulates a Yakos hot dog. And I grew up in Allentown and the Iacocca family has Yakos as like the local hot dog chain. And so that's just the, the dog I grew up eating and it's, it's very nostalgic for me. Great hot dog. How about you? What's your favorite? I'm a generally mustard onion only, mm. but I can go for a chili cheese dog occasionally. Nice. Just because I like a mess. <laughs> Let's fire these up and eat some hot dogs. Awesome. Happy, happy grilling season. The recipe for Ian's all beef or venison hot dog can be found on our website at thefarmcookingschool.com slash the dash podcast. All right, there we have it. Like the coals at the end of a barbecue, another episode bites the dust. Next time on our podcast, we're hitting the beach. From Cape May to Cabo Pulmo, we're talking everything from saving reefs to sustainable fishing, what to look for in seafood, to why you need to eat more oysters, obviously. Oh, 
And if you miss us in between episodes, which we know that you do, we're starting to roll out scraps left on the edit room floor from some of our favorite interviews. Check out our new mini-sudes, Second Course. Our first one features chef, butcher, and dude extraordinaire, Mr. Brian Mayer. To get even more cooking school action, join us for a class, swing by the market, or just send us some fan mail. Our website, thefarmcookingschool.com, has everything you need, including information about market times and a class schedule. And be sure to follow us on social media at The Farm Cooks. Questions? You know where to send them. Just over to me, Kendra at thefarmcookingschool.com. And hey, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and just leave us a note. This episode, we'd like to thank Ian, Shelly, Joy Stocky, and Judy Castro-Lucero, and of course, our editor, Andrew Applegate. Till next time, cook well, and eat your vegetables. Bounce, bounce, collagen. Maybe that'll be after.